Hey guys, it is Lawrence James here from Crossfader. I just want to give a shout out from myself and all the team from Crossfader. We're working very hard on releasing something very, very special in 2021. And you will all get to know what that is very, very soon. But for this very, very special edition of the Off The Record podcast, we were joined by a DJ pioneer, one of the greatest DJs in the world, not only right now, but one of the most important and influential DJs in the industry, probably of all time. I had a chat with none other than five-time DJ champion, Grammy-nominated DJ producer, A-Track. We chatted about his brand new mixer, but not only that, we got a brief history of the man himself, right from winning five DMC World Championship battles before the age of 18 to becoming a dominant force for BeatSource and pushing this streaming scene forward. Please enjoy this very, very special Off The Record podcast. A big thank you to A-Track for joining us and thank you to Rain for setting up this interview. A-Track, how are you, my man? I'm good, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Where are you right now in the world? Where are you where are we talking to you from? I am in New York City. Nice. Yeah, thanks for joining us, man. Um, you're here to talk about cool products that um, mm. brought to us. Um, but seeing it's, seeing it's your first time on the channel, just want to get an um, introduction to A-Track. So we're going to take you back and then we're going to have some fun in the middle and then we'll come okay. full circle, talk about the products and then some stuff that you're currently doing, if that's okay. For sure. Cool. So yeah, we've got a lot of up and coming DJs, young DJs just wanted to start out. You started your journey kind of at the top, right? You 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 won the DMC battle at age 15. Um, mm-hmm. And so you kind of started at the top. So take us back to that moment when you were 15. Like what made you get into turntablism? When did you first start wanting to be thinking like you wanted to be a DJ? Um, really about two or three years prior to that, when I was 12 or 13. Um, so... You know, I grew up in Montreal, Canada, and uh, this was the mid-90s. I was falling in love with hip-hop and just, you know, discovering everything that came with hip-hop, the whole culture. Um, So I kind of knew about scratching from listening to records that had scratching on them, you know. So if I was listening to the Beastie Boys um, or the Far Side or anything that DJ Premier touched or anything that Pete Rock touched, I was hearing scratching on those records. Um, so I was just kind of aware of it. Um, my, uh, my older brother, Dave, who I still work with to this day, you know, at the time was playing with a, with a band with his friends from high school, kind of a acid jazz sort yeah. of band in those years. Nice. Uh, and he had like a friend of a friend who knew how to scratch. So like, you know, me being 13, there was, no, there was limited access for me to even know how scratching worked. But my brother being 17 and having a friend who, you know, came and scratched when they uh, um, recorded a demo, uh, that gave us information just in terms of like, oh, there's a mixer and there's a thing called a crossfader. And this, this, you know, this is what the setup is. Like, that's kind of how I had access to stuff was my older brother and his friends. Um, and, um, you know, it, it was pretty much as simple as me trying out scratching on my dad's record player, which I think everyone does at some point in their lives. Um, but for whatever reason, having a little bit of a knack to it um, and deciding to, to to stick to that and practice um, every day after school and, and um, 
basically two years later, I was world champion. So, <laughs> so cool. it happened very fast. That's so cool. I remember when I first heard of you, um, when I just started out DJing and um, I'd actually seen you at a show, you were Kanye's DJ. So I remember reading mm -hmm. up about you and how you got the gig. And essentially you were DJing in a store in London, Kanye walks, yep. Kanye walks in and you didn't initially work with him right then. You had to kind of pursue it, but just take us back to what happened when you was DJing in that record store in, in London. Yeah. So, um, I was in London just to play a, a club gig and, um, to help promote the show. I, um, I did an in-store performance at deal real, which, uh, you know, was a great shop at the time. And, um, Kanye and the rest of the Rockefeller team were also in London, I think on some sort of promo trip. Kanye's first album, College Dropout, had just recently come out. And John Legend was, at the time, just the guy who played keyboards on stage with Kanye. And, and he had just signed his own record deal, but he was not very known. Um, so John Legend was also booked to play at, at Deal Real to, to do an in-store. So, you know, by a twist of fate, um, both myself and John Legend were performing at the same shop the same afternoon. And Kanye came to support John and saw me doing these routines. Um, and, I, you know, from, from what he told me afterwards, there was something about the choice of records that I was using. I was, you know, flipping a Jay-Z record and, and doing something with a Talib Kweli record that he had produced that, that spoke to him. And Kanye needed a tour DJ. He was about to go on his first big tours. And... Um, I think he liked the idea of uh, just having this team of really talented people around him. Um, John, he would call John Legend the future of R&B. Right. And he saw me play. And I remember he told me that, I remember he said something along the, fact, along, uh, yeah, along the lines of like, he said like, yeah, usually when I see these scratch DJs, I don't even really understand what they're doing or, or I don't know the records right. they're using. So the fact that I was using records that he had a reference point with, that really spoke to him. And um, he didn't even, he didn't know who I was, even though I was five-time world champion by then. Yep. But some people around him were like, yo, that's A-Track. He's won all these battles. So I think a light bulb went off for him in his mind where he could say, you know, he could sort of show off and say, I got the best DJ in the world. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, so, so um, I had to sort of hunt him down a little bit after that in-store, but we, we, we spoke and he said he wanted to take me on tour. And then I had to hunt down his manager to make sure that it happened. But that was just kind of, I just had to make sure that that opportunity didn't slip between the hands and, yeah. and, and then it happened. I think that's a really, you know, cool thing for any aspiring DJs to note that, you know, just you, you got to pursue that, right? You can't just let something like that slip through your fingers. It takes hard yeah. work, dedication, persistence to pursue something for, like that, right? For sure. But I think there's, I also think that there's a fine line there where I think a lot of people are sort of just looking for a break. A lot of people think that they need someone else to give them a break. And um, I think there's, you know, you definitely have to chase opportunities when the right ones arise, right. but you also have to realize that there's some, you know, you, there's something that you have to create for yourself too. Sure. You know, ultimately, um, you know, I think there, there was something about the performance that I did at, at, at that store that spoke to Kanye sure. and, and then, yeah, I had to realize that this was something worth chasing for me. And I ended up, you know, tracking Kanye down before going to the airport to go back to Canada. So right. I, I, I chased it for sure. And I hustled it with his manager for months after. Um, but it's not as simple as just contacting someone out of the blue and saying, give me, give me a shot. Me a you got to also show and prove right. and be, and be ready for it when, when that opportunity arises. Cool. So yeah, you performed on, you know, Kanye headline tours, 
Grammys, MTV Awards, you know, is there any mm. kind of special moments that you just kind of stopped and was like, wow, this is this is really happening? Uh, as far as the shows with Kanye? Yeah, well, and, you know, MTV Awards and, and all that kind of stuff, yeah. I mean, all yeah, all, all that stuff was, uh, all that stuff was larger than life, but I didn't even really stop and, you know, to, to take any of it in while it was happening because yeah. there was always you know, something, the next thing to get ready for. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I did in those years with Kanye that I only was able to appreciate years later. uh, If, you know, if I just stumbled upon footage of a performance and be like, damn, we really did that. (laughs) At the time, it was just going all the time. And then in the process of working with Kanye, I launched Fool's Gold. And for about a year, I tried to do both of those (laughs) things at the same time. And then I left the Kanye gig to pursue Fool's Gold. And so even the early years of Fool's Gold, which were also the early years of me figuring out how to produce and make remixes, that was a period where everything was moving fast too. Amazing. Okay, we're going to break it up. We're going to have a bit of fun. So we're going to play a little game. We're going to, it's called, Does A-Track Know His Tracks Backwards? So I've, okay. just, I've just chosen, not necessarily made by you, but tracks that I think have had, you know, a major impact on you becoming, you know, the forefront of the production world, the EDM blow up. So... Here's number one. Let's see if we can get this one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not the hardest. Heads will roll. <laughs> I mean, it's not the hardest quiz in the world, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, tell us about you know, heads will roll is. I mean, I I don't think I've ever played a DJ set and not played that. It's kind of okay. one of them. You hear it in every festival around the world. Um, mm. How did heads will roll come about? What's the, what's the story there? Well, it's funny because that was one that I sort of hustled for myself too. Mm-hmm. You know, generally when when you do a remix for a label normally it's the it's the label or the band that that reaches out to the remixer um when that when uh, that yeah yeah yeah's album came out um i liked the record a lot and i really remember going to watch their performance at coachella and um the song heads will roll really stood out to me it wasn't a single yet but there was something about it that that um i wanted to try to remix and i asked my manager at the time, if she could contact their team and see if they would send me stems, uh, so that's something that that I where I kind of proceeded backwards, right. um, and then I really spent a lot of time uh, making that remix. Even though it sounds quite simple, I spent a lot of time just getting to that simplicity. Sure, um, and uh, and I missed my deadline by a lot, and the label <laughs> almost didn't put it out. Right. And I had to do another sort of hustle then because um, I delivered it so late that the label was had moved on to promoting another song. So I gave the remix to a few DJ friends and a bunch of DJs started playing it. And, and then the label took notice and, and, and they released my version of the remix. And, so, and then it, and it ended up blowing up. Really? But that too almost didn't happen. Okay, here's the second one. Again? Oh, okay, that's Cuddy. Uh, is that Day and Night? Day and Night. Right. Oh, it's so a remix. It's, okay. okay, so yeah, not, not uh, produced by you, but tell us a story. Yeah, no, sure, yeah. Tell us a story about yeah. you and, and Kid Cuddy and yeah, how you signed him, basically. Um, so I met Cuddy through Plain Pat. Right. And Plain Pat at the time was mostly known, uh, his main job was he was an A&R for Kanye, or really he was in, in our for Def Jam, uh, who had worked closely, closely with Kanye. Um, <clears throat> and Pat 
found Cuddy, I think on MySpace or something. Cuddy was completely unknown and um, I think was working at the Babe store. So was, you know, I, I, I believe at the time he was kind of, he, you know, he's from Cleveland, but he was coming to New York or, or was starting to live in New York. And um, Pat sent me <clears throat> two or three songs, including Day and Night. Mm -hmm. And even though Pat was working at Def Jam at, at the time, I think the major label system at that time probably wouldn't have known how to handle the kind of music that Cuddy was making, which was quite, you know, left, left the center. Right. Um, so uh, Pat wanted to know if I was interested in maybe putting that out on Fool's Gold or, or just being involved in some capacity. I loved, um, I loved the music. Um, we put out the day and night single on Fool's Gold. Um, and over months and months and months, it ended up really blowing up. Right. And the Crookers did their remix because they heard the song on our MySpace page. So <laughs> even cool. that was something that we didn't even seek out the Crookers. We were friends with them. We were fans of theirs and friends with them. They heard the song on our MySpace page, on the Fool's Gold MySpace page. And it was a very sort of casual, friendly exchange of like, hey, do you have stems for this? So, you know, again, it happened very organically. And um, but through the power of music, sure. um, both the original version and the remix blew up. Sure. Here is the third and final one. Okay. Your yeah, I know this one. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it sounds similar backwards, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Barbara Streisand. There we go. Yeah, talk to us. This is probably, you know, one of the most successful records you've ever put out. Um, oh, for sure. Do you want to talk to us about the whole Duck Sauce project and how that came about? Yeah, Duck Sauce is um, uh, myself and Armand Van Helden mm -hmm. uh, just having fun and, and making tracks together. Um, I met Armand uh, around the time that I moved to New York in 2006. Uh, we became friends but didn't start making music until later on. Um, Armand and I kind of hit it off with this idea that both of us came from hip hop, got into house music, but sort of maintained a hip hop identity. Right. Um, so we really saw eye to eye and we were in, into similar things taste wise. Um, eventually decided to make some tracks together. Uh, this was at a time when uh, electro was really big. And when I say electro, I mean sort of that, that, that justice sound and uh, crookers and bloody beat roots in that whole sure. era where everything was distorted and people were trying to out distort each other. Right. And um, so with duck sauce, we chose to go for sort of feel good disco house initially as a reaction to that, as a sort of palate cleanser mm -hmm. where everything was as loud and as distorted as possible. We, we went in the completely opposite direction and, um, and, and brought these really simple, feel good loopy tracks and Barbara Streisand was something that we made really just for fun uh, to make ourselves laugh. We never thought it would be a huge hit, yep. um, but it, again, through the power of music, it, it, it went very far. The power of music. Amazing. Thanks for that, man. Um, right. So let's yeah. bring it back here. You brought us an amazing product today. It is the rain 70 a track edition. So we've, yep. got, it, we've got it here at the Crossfader studios and you, as soon as you open the box, it's like, wow, like that silver finish is just, you know, that, it's, a, it's a showstopper. Before we get into some of the kind of the features on the mixer, um, you know, what's, how do you collaborate on a project like this with Rain? How does that come about and how involved are you in, in the process of creating this mixer? 
Um, the way that it came about, honestly, was just that Rain reached out right. um, to see if I'd be interested in in, uh, in making a signature edition of, of the 70, which wasn't out yet because this, this started, the conversation started right. two years ago. Um, and um, for, for me, it was always a dream right. to have a signature mixer. So I was very excited um, and also excited that it was, you know, that this opportunity presented itself with a mixer that I thought was already great quality. Sure. Um, I think the 70 is, is, is the best, already the best mixer in its class. So I was happy to make an HI version of it. So then where things went from there were, was basically what's possible. Yeah. You know, cause my mind can go in all types of places. And I was thinking as much about design as about features, mm -hmm. but um, you know, I had to familiarize myself with what what the sort of like manufacturing process is like for a mixer like this, and where they were at with um, uh, the, the standard seventy mixer too. And yet, so literally, what's what's possible? What can I change? Yeah. Can I change the faceplate? Can I change the colors, the finish, the knobs? Um, and, and sound wise too. And, and understanding that, you know, um, I couldn't add, you know, I couldn't place buttons or pads mm -hmm. in a new, you know, in a place that didn't exist on the standard 70 yeah. or, you know, that to give you an example of limitations. So working within this sort of framework, what can I do with it? And then I started having fun with, with the design and with the features. So on the design side, yeah. um, I was also pulling references of, mixers some of them from the 70s and some of them more more recent and some of them from sort of like the the scratch pickles era of scratch of, of turntablism too yeah. and so just looking at um a bunch of different eras trying to get a sense of what materials we can use um and then there was an aha moment with the idea of of, of taking rotary knobs and luckily rain makes the mp uh, 2015 that has rotary knobs already so that's you know again this is part of me having to understand what's possible with manufacturing. So if I wanted something like rotary knobs, it worked out great that they had parts that could be sort of repurposed from one mixer to another. Sure. Um, and, um, and then there was a lot of work done on my end uh, with the design uh, with uh, the typography and, and everything that is printed on the mixer. Um, so, Myself and my brother, who helps out with a lot of creative direction with my projects, we we linked up with um, with an artist who specializes in experimental typography, and we just had cool. fun with what the mixer could look like. I mean, it looks super dope. In the actual box itself, it comes with a personalized message from you from yourself yeah. saying, you know, every mixer should have you know its own kind of feature of it, and mm -hmm. you've introduced fader effects, which I've had a go on, and I can see the possibilities there that again they just open up another avenue is yeah. is the idea just to keep um, creating and just having you know endless possibilities right at your fingertips 100% yeah i you know the idea was first of all um if there's going to be an a track edition of the rain 70 um there was kind of this general idea that this could be the mixer that has just a little bit of a more advanced feature of some sort mm -hmm. for the for the performing turntables the same way that like you know uh you can have like a standard car and there's like a limited edition that has maybe a more powerful engine or certain features that, you know, that just go further. So we wanted my mixer to, to, to give some sort of tool to the user that could go further with turntable performances. And to me, I, I really feel like in recent years, 
the advent of certain uh, features on on mixers and on software, like seeing uh, seeing certain features appear on on hardware and software, has pushed the innovation of, of DJs and their routines. You know, so sure. it's like uh, when certain types of pads appeared, or, or where when you know key lock or key shift or things like that started appearing, it 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 catalyzed. It the innovation of DJs. Absolutely. So I like the idea of putting something at the, at, you know, at the literally fingertips of DJs just to say, Hey guys, go nuts. Like yeah. here's a thing that w- isn't on the other version of the mixer. Let's see what you can create with it. Absolutely. I can definitely see these um, being showcased at something that you put on, which is the Goldie Awards, which is something I love to watch every year. The, the whole team, uh, here, thanks, we watch yeah. it, we watch it every year. Um, yep. When, why did you decide that, you know, the world needed another, um, you know, DJ competition, DJ producer competition? Um, what made you decide to come full circle where you began? Yeah. And it's, it's definitely full circle for mm-hmm. me. Um, and that came from just a sort of observation that, you know, I think, in um, in the years prior to me starting Goldie Awards, um, the DJing itself and producing itself and and the place of DJs and, and producers in popular culture went through a huge growth, right? And and so many people are familiar with the names of producers now. So many people are familiar with DJs, and even the possibilities of what a producer can do the range of styles that exist, the range of equipment that exists. And uh, similarly for DJs, like what is at the disposal of DJs? It's so huge. I feel like there wasn't a battle that captured that whole range. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, the sort of cutting edge technology of where that's all going. And in a way that's all encompassing, in a way where DJs and producers could be allowed to showcase anything that they want. I felt like everything was still pretty segmented and that the that culture is shared in a way that's no longer segmented that way. Sure. So that's why I wanted to launch Goldie Awards sure. to match the way that culture is really being consumed now. Sure. When you're judging, what makes a winning DJ set? Um, to me, what, what, th- there's, always, there's always many DJs who are excellent. Sure at these battles, right? And there, it always boils down to like, there's something that's gonna make the winner stand out. There's probably three or four DJs that could be winners, right. that came with a flawless routine that innovated in some ways. And I think what really ultimately stands out and makes the winner number one is usually some, some sort of talking point, some sort of wow factor, the thing that you're gonna talk to your friends about the next day Right. You know, without it being a, a, a gimmick, but just something that goes beyond good execution. Sure. You know, and something sometimes that's also charisma too, but something that's enjoyable to everyone and that just feels like it 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 hit a sweet spot or it it hit some sort of like oh shit moment right. further than the others. Right. The last yeah. thing, the last thing I want to touch on with you, a track is. Um, a lot of DJs ask us, you know, where you get your music from. And I know you're heavily involved in BeatSource as well. And yeah, the whole yeah. streaming um, 
the streaming scene has kind of taken off in the last couple of years and it's yeah. kind of the only way forward are you, mm-hmm. are you do you when you're turning up to sets are you using streaming and, and what's what's the guys at beat source doing and how are they pushing this scene forward yeah so to explain what what beat source is doing um it you know it, it's kind of a few things at the same time um musically sort of selection wise uh, with the initial launch of BeatSource, there was this idea that it was going to be an open format store um, because, you know, you had Beatport that was electronic music and then hip hop DJs get their music on usually other record pools or elsewhere or do promos from from the labels. Yep. Um, and, you know, anything in between and even like DJ edits had nowhere to live. So with BeatSource, musically, there was um, a goal to cover the range that most DJs, club DJs especially, actually do cover. So to be like the one-stop shop. And then technologically, there's BeatSource Link, which allows DJs to, you know, uh, build up playlists of tracks that are, uh, that are streaming, mm-hmm. but where you can put some of them in your locker that are available offline and, um, and, 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 you know, essentially play off of their streaming service, um, which is a huge change. And like you mentioned, you know, I think we're at a point with uh, the advancement of, of streaming music where there's kind of no turning back and there's, you know, someone's going to have to figure it out. And, and, <laughs> and, and BeatSource is taking a good swing at it. Um, and it's an interesting time right now because it, everything is very hybrid. Mm-hmm. So it's possible to play some tracks off of your you know, streaming playlists on, on, on BeatSource and other tracks, for example, your own edits and your own demos off of your hard drive. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a good time for all of us to experiment with that. Um, There's a lot of powerful features that come with the idea of subscribing to streaming service. Um, You know, even something as simple as subscribing to playlists that they curate. Yeah, sure. Um, You know, there's a lot of discovery that can happen like that. BeatSource has a thing called VIP crates Mm -hmm. where, they ask certain DJs. Um, I, I've done one. Um, that little, you can get John, to the little John yeah, one. You can yeah. get Welshie Fire, whoever, yeah, right? For sure. And see what's in their crates. It's and not even just what's in their crates, but what what never leaves their crates. Right. What are their surefire the tracks anthems, right? that will always rock a party? You will definitely discover tracks that you're not playing on, you know, yourself by going through someone mm-hmm. else's VIP crate. Um, but also just subscribing to, you know new hip hop yeah. or like new Afro beats or new reggaeton or whatever it may be. Staying you know, there's so much music that comes out. We spend a lot of time just keeping up with new tracks, but you know, I think for any DJ there's when we're keeping up with the weekly releases, you know, sometimes it feels like our time is better spent finding the tracks that are going to be unique to us, sure. but we need to still have, you know, the, the the massive tracks that everyone has mm-hmm. but you know i think something like beat source that allows that just updates your playlist with the new releases where you don't have to spend too much time to go in a bunch of different promo folders and you know <laughs> right. those just kind of land on uh-huh. your uh uh on your subscription and you can spend your time digging up the stuff that will make your set more unique i think that's really powerful Cool. In this last minute, A-Track, we're just going to, again, end on some fun, have a little game. So I just want to clear, clear your mind. There's no time limit, yep. but answer as fast as you can. We're just going to name, it's called Name Three Things. So first of all, 
who are your three favorite DJs? <laughs> nice and easy. Nice and easy. Don't have to think about yeah. it. I won't hold you to them. Craze, uh, J Rock, Boys Noise. What's your three go to tracks at a festival? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Barbara Streisand. Um, and then it's usually a rotation of, of, of you know, whatever's a, a recent uh, banger. <laughs> a banger, know, yeah. That's kind of open slot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what's your three favorite Netflix shows? Oh. Um, <sighs> that's hard, right? I, I, huh? That's hard. That's hard. <laughs> yeah, specifically Netflix. <laughs> well, any, a TV, uh, TV show. Just sort of streaming just, shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there's a French show called The Bureau that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Gamora, the Italian show. Yeah. Um, and uh, Chef's Table. Nice. <laughs> Three favorite festivals? Um, I love Coachella. Um, I love uh, Summer Sonic in, J- in, uh, in Japan. Yep. Um, and, uh, let's see what else. Mm. You done Glastonbury? Yeah. A long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The mud. <laughs> the mud. <laughs> yeah. But, um, no, I'm trying to think of something a little bit more boutique. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, one that I haven't played in a long time, but I really respect is Ross Gilda. Okay. Uh, yeah. 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 I, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, A-Track, thank you so much for joining us. When we heard we could interview you, the whole team was super gassed, uh, me personally as Great, well. Thanks. So thanks for pushing the DJ scene forward. And we hope to see you again live soon when we can travel. We'll come see you live somewhere. Yeah, um, I appreciate it. But it's been a pleasure. Thanks for spending some time thanks today. Thanks for having me, yeah. Peace. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thanks.